Amen. Thank you. If you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, we finally have gotten out of chapter 6. And uh, we're moving into chapter 7 as we continue to study uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters, 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. This is chapter 7, so we're two-thirds of the way through. And uh, we pick up with chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7 this morning, where the Bible says this. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. That is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is, we know, living, active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And Father, we need your word to be that to us today. We need it to be a sword, the sword of the Spirit, to cut away from our lives all that is displeasing to you, to remove from our hearts and lives those things that are in disobedience to your word and to your commandments. Now, Lord God, we pray this morning you use this text in that way. And guide us, we pray, as we deliberate over it, as we study it, as we think through it, as I preach from it. I pray that your spirit would be our guide, your spirit would be our teacher. And we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to understand what your word says. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible has a lot to say about judgment. There's no way to escape uh, the clear teaching of God's word that there is coming a day of judgment. The Bible is clear, saying that there will be a day when each one of us will stand before what the Bible calls the judgment seat of Christ. God, through Christ, is always presented in the Bible as the righteous judge of all the earth. Without exception, when the Bible talks about judgment, that is, judging people, it is a right reserved for God alone. Over and over and over again, the Bible says that God is the judge. The privilege of judging is reserved for him exclusively. But the problem is that many times we try to reach out and take what rightfully belongs to God. Many times we, not consciously, I know, but many times, perhaps subconsciously, try to climb up on the judgment throne ourselves and declare judgment upon people. And Jesus says that's not something you and I are supposed to do. The privilege of judgment has not been given to us. Now, those who were the most guilty of that in Jesus' day were the scribes and the Pharisees. They looked down their noses at people who weren't quite like them. They judged people who held to a different view from them and who didn't follow their particular mode of moral conduct. But you see, their standard of evaluation and judgment was not God's standard. It was something that far exceeded that which... God's word gave. It was their own man-made, self-righteous standard. Now, Jesus' words are clear here, aren't they? When he says, do not judge, 
so that you will not be judged. Do not judge, Jesus says. But these two verses, this one verse in particular, perhaps have been taken out of context and misused and even abused as much as any verses in the Bible. Let's try to unfold for a few moments this morning what Jesus is telling us here in these two verses. I want to begin first this morning by talking about this word to judge. What does it mean when Jesus says that we are not to judge? The word judge means to separate or to determine. In a courtroom, the, the duty of the judge, the job of the judge is to separate what is true from what is not true. He's telling us, Jesus is not telling us here, however, that we're not to make those kinds of distinctions. We're, he's not saying we're not to separate truth from untruth or truth from falsehood. Uh, when Jesus tells us, do not judge, he's not telling us not to have that kind of discrimination in our minds. But that's how many people misconstrue this text and these words. They maintain that Jesus is forbidding us from making any moral judgments or any discernment between what is acceptable behavior or what is true and what is not. Now, you know that. We live in a culture like that, don't we? We live in a culture where there are no absolutes and where people are looked down upon if they say, that's not right, that's not true, and that's not acceptable. We live in a culture where we want to embrace everyone's ideas, accept everyone's lifestyle, and not make anyone feel as though they are in any way excluded or pushed aside. But is that what Jesus is saying, that we can't make any kind of moral judgments or any declarations about what is true or what is not? It can't be. Because it would violate what Jesus himself teaches other places in the New Testament and where other New Testament writers give us similar instruction. For example, you, just look, you don't have to look far. Look down in verse 6 of chapter 7. Where Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine. We'll get to that verse in just a few weeks. But if you want to do that, keep from throwing your pearls before the ones Jesus calls dogs and pigs, you've got to make a judgment, don't you? You've got to decide, who are those people? If you look down in verse 15. Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus says, You've got to beware of false prophets. That is, false teachers. And if you're going to identify a false teacher, you've got to make some sort of judgment, don't you, about what is true and what is not, who is teaching the truth and who is not. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but he, he tells us to be careful with whom we associate. Don't associate, he says, with people who are idolaters, who are immoral, who are swindlers, who are covetous, who are revilers, who are drunkards. Well, if you're going to avoid those kinds of people, you've got to make some kind of judgment, don't you, as to who those people are. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says that we are not to judge according to appearance, 
but rather we are to judge with righteous judgment. So even there Jesus tells us there's some form of judgment in which we are to participate, a kind of righteous judgment. We can go on and on with passages for a long time this morning, but what we've seen makes it clear already that Jesus is not telling us that we're not to make any kinds of moral distinctions or judgments between truth and error or between right and wrong. He's not telling us that we should accept everything, embrace every teaching, condone any behavior in which anyone might engage. He's not saying, for example, that we're not as believers to say or to declare that abortion is a sin, that homosexual is an abomination, that lying is contrary to God's word, and that God hates divorce. He's not saying that you cannot make those kinds of discernments between false teaching and make those kinds of judgments. I was listening to a talk radio show not long ago, and uh, there was a guest host. One of the regular hosts was away, and there was a guest host, and uh, the topic came up about uh, the personhood amendment. Everybody familiar with the personhood amendment? It's the amendment that's going to go on the state on the ballot this this uh, fall, uh, which, if passed, will amend uh, the state constitution within the state of Mississippi to declare that uh, personhood begins at conception, that life begins at conception. That would be added to uh, the state constitution. Well. Uh, there was a discussion about that, and there were a number of calls uh, about that, and almost without exception, the calls were in support of it, in support of uh, the personhood amendment, uh, against abortion, and in favor of uh, the right to life. Well, this guest host took exception to the callers, and he was appalled that people would make that kind of kind of absolute moral. Declaration that abortion was wrong. And he went to this verse. And he said, we should not judge. We should not judge the position of another person on a matter such as that. But I want you to understand, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not telling us we cannot make those kinds of moral judgments and declarations. Now, we do not judge the person. That's the distinction I want you to understand. We don't judge the person. That is the right reserved for God alone. Because only God sees the heart. But we are to judge positions. We are to judge belief systems. We are to judge behavior. We are to judge people's world and life view. If it's outside the boundaries of God's word, we need to declare it. It's outside the boundaries. That's what I did a few weeks ago from the pulpit, not during the sermon, but during the little personal time I had with you when I basically denounced the decision of the mainline Presbyterian Church, United States of America, their decision to approve the ordination of homosexuals. Jesus is saying that his people are not to declare that to be wrong. We, it is incumbent upon us to make those kinds of moral declarations when they are within the confines of the teaching of God's word. If something is unbiblical, 
God requires us to declare it to be so. Well, if that is not what Jesus is saying, what is he saying? The grammatical form of the word here to judge is a present imperative. Now, an imperative is a command. It's an order. Present tense in the Greek indicates a continual or persistent action. And so Jesus is talking about not just the fact that we're not to sit on God's moral judgment throne and judge individual people. That is his right. But that we're not to have a continual attitude of judging others. A persistent judgmental spirit. What we call today a critical spirit. Where nothing is satisfactory. Where everything is wrong. Where we look down upon everything else that doesn't kind of suit us and our own particular whims or positions or preferences. And so part of what Jesus is saying here, we aren't to have a critical spirit judging others as a matter of course. Now again, we're not supposed to sit in judgment on another person. We might judge their belief, their behavior, their position, but not their person. I want to make it clear, that is the right of God alone. There's a difference, for example, in confronting someone with their sin. As the Bible tells us to do in Matthew 18, you know, Matthew 18 tells us that if you find a brother in sin, you're to go to him personally and to confront him with that. If you don't listen to him, you're supposed to take a, take a witness. If he still doesn't repent, then you're supposed to bring him before the church. Well, there's a difference in confronting someone with their sin and judging that person in their sin. Because Paul tells us that the attitude of a believer towards someone caught in sin is not one of judgment, but one of restoration. Paul tells us to deal with people like that gently, seeking to restore them to fellowship and to be careful in doing so, he says, lest we too fall into the same temptation. So that's what... uh, the word to judge means here. Second, I want you to see the reasons that Jesus gives for this exhortation not to judge others. And there are two reasons. And one is in verse 7. The full reading of verse seven, verse 1 is this. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Turn around and say in a positive way, if you judge, you will be judged. Judging others is outside the boundaries of what God has given to his people to do. And Jesus says, if you judge, then you'll be judged for doing that. God will hold you accountable for that disobedience. Then the second reason is in verse 2, follows the first. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will measure to you. What in the world is Jesus saying there? Well, he's simply saying that God will judge you with the same kind of attitude that you judge others. That if you're harsh and judgmental and don't show mercy to others, how can you expect God to show mercy to you? Now, I want you to understand that God is not giving us here, or Jesus is not giving us here, a performance-based relationship with our Heavenly Father. We've seen that all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. Joe made reference to it this morning in Sunday school. Because the primary focus in the Sermon on the Mount has always been 
on the condition of the heart. And the fact that our behavior is an expression of the condition of our heart. Out of the heart, we've seen flow all the issues of life. What you say is a reflection of the condition of your heart. What you do reflects your character, reflects your heart. And this is true in terms of judging others also. If you judge others, it's a reflection of your heart. You have a judgmental heart, a judgmental spirit. And God judges us on the basis of the condition of our heart. And that's why Jesus says, if you judge, you'll be judged. You'll be judged by the same measure that you use for others. Because that is a reflection of your heart. And God will deal with you according to the state and condition of your heart. Well, in the third place, and then before we conclude this morning, I want to consider how we avoid the trap of falling into this sin of judging others. Again, you need to understand that it's a matter of the heart. And for a a person who's judgmental, self is always at the core. We really say about almost any sin, can't we? Self is always at the core. And so many times when we judge other people, it's an attempt not so much to put them down as to build ourselves up. One of the primary methods we use, techniques we use to make us feel good about ourselves is to put someone else down. And so many times when we judge someone in our own heart, it's a means that we use to try to either justify or to build up ourselves in our own lives. See, the, the more you think of yourself, and the Bible says not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but the more you think of yourself, the less you will think of others. And the more you think of yourself, the more critical you will be of others. That's why the Bible says to consider others more important than yourselves. It's a problem of the heart. It's a problem that we focus upon self. We must also try to avoid being hypercritical. That's another way to avoid what Jesus is saying here. There is a difference, you know, between being critical and hypercritical. Now, we all need criticism. We all need correction. One of the questions I've been asking candidates that we interview is, how do you deal with criticism? How do you take criticism? Maybe a better question would have been to ask, how do you give criticism? Because there's a way to give criticism without being critical, without judging, and without condemning. Okay, dads, this is where I get to the Father's Day part of the sermon. It's essential that you correct, that you discipline your children. That is your God-given responsibility. And that requires a certain amount of criticism. You have to criticize the bad things they do, correct the bad, so they will put that aside and do what is good. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing what God requires of you. 
You're leaving that to your wife. You're abdicating your responsibility from God. But you have to be careful. You have to be careful not to be overly critical of your children. You need to make sure that you're not sitting in judgment on your children. You must correct the bad, but you must at the same time praise the good. And there may be times when you have to look real hard to find it. But even when you are correcting your child about disobedience, it is so helpful to find something good, something positive that you can tell that child that points them to the benefit of obedience and also elevates their understanding of their value in your eyes. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 6, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In the the text we read from Colossians 3 in our unison reading earlier, Paul says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they may not lose heart. That is, you must find the balance between proper correction and too much criticism, between encouraging your child to greater obedience but making them think like no matter what they do, they will never be able to measure up to your standard. Never be able to please you or satisfy you. And in correcting your child, you need to make sure that you deal with a problem that affects their behavior without attacking them as a person. That's a challenge. Disciplining your child without judging your child, without condemning your child, without destroying your child's sense of self-worth before you. We need to be praying for our fathers in this congregation. And we talk a lot, don't we, about all the children God has given to us. How many times have you heard me talk about the blessing the children are? Children provide us two things. I won't give you a quiz, but you ought to be able to say them by now. Give us two things. One, what a great privilege and opportunity. What an awesome responsibility God has given to us with all these children. But you know, what we need to remember is Every child has a what? Has a parent. Along with these children come parents. Parents who need encouragement. Parents who need support. Parents who need help. Parents who need someone to come alongside them and join hands with them and encourage them and pray with them and pray for them. And so will you make that commitment with me this morning? Especially those of you who are like me, who've been there and done that, who are in the stage of the empty nest, will you join me in committing to pray for these parents, in particular this morning for these dads, these fathers, who are dealing every day with these children, from babes in arms to those in college. That God would give them the daily grace and the wisdom and the patience and the strength and the understanding to deal with each child that God has given to them in a way that would provide the discipline and the correction, the nurture in the Lord that they need.
One other thing about the implications from this text before we close. That is, many times we, when we judge people, we kind of look down on people. When we exclude people. We do it on the basis of standards that God has not set. Sometimes we're so much like the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees built what we call a hedge around the law. And the hedge was their own man-made rules and regulations and stipulations. Now, the intent was good. Because they were so desirous of not breaking God's law that they, they kind of added some periphery out here. And they thought, well, if I don't violate this, it'll keep me from violating God's law. But you know what happened? The periphery became as important as, important as the law itself. The man-made regulations became of the same worth and value as the law. And it became the standard. And so the Pharisees judged and looked down upon and excluded anyone who didn't embrace those peripheral things that were really outside the boundaries of what God's Word taught. Aren't we many times like that as well? Okay, sometimes when I'm in the pulpit, i got to raise my hand and say, sometimes I'm like that. Sometimes I judge people on their appearance. Do you? You know, they look quite like me. And I might not look like the way they look. But you know, God's Word didn't exclude it. Sometimes I judge people on the basis of the entertainment they choose. You know, some of us like sports, and some of us like art, and some of us like movies. You can ask my wife, I hate movies. To be honest, there aren't just a whole lot of good movies out there, are there? It's real easy for me to, if somebody says they watch a lot of movies, to say, you do? You do? And that's a judgment on my preference and not on the teaching of God's Word. Sometimes we judge people also, or I judge people also, on what they eat or drink. I might not eat it. I might not drink it. But God's Word doesn't say that it's necessarily not right. The list could be long, couldn't it? where so many times we judge other people, even judge their behavior on standards that God doesn't set. And so we need to be careful. Careful that we abide by and teach only what God tells us to do and how God tells us to be. My, my, what a challenge this is. To live our lives without judging other people about trying to climb upon the judgment throne of God and declare moral judgment upon others. And not to be critical, overly critical of other people. And not to be so critical of our children they just give up 
They just give up and want to quit. How can we ever follow Jesus' teaching? It is, again, by looking to Him. Paul says, again, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can't do it on your own. I can't do it on my own. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We must look to Jesus, draw our strength, our help from Him. We must rely upon the Holy Spirit. We must be filled with the Spirit. We must walk in the Spirit every day to give us wisdom, discernment, judgment. To have the mind of Christ as a gift of the Spirit. And we must follow the example of Jesus. I said at the very earliest point, God is the judge. God, through Christ, will judge the world. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He is the judge. And yet when Jesus came, the Bible says, He did not come to condemn the world. He came to save it. And that's to be our focus. Our focus should not be to condemn and to judge, but to reach out with the good news of the gospel, to share winsomely and hopefully powerfully the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God let it be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I pray for your grace uh, today for all of our lives. It is so easy to disobey, so easy to fall into traps of the world, of the self-righteous. And I pray that we would not do that, but we would follow the righteous teachings of your word and that we would be zealous, O oh Father, to reach others with the good news of the gospel not judging, but loving, proclaiming the hope that is there that Christ has given us. And we ask it in his name. Amen.